0: Hey everyone, I'm Brandon Odo. And I'm Brian Bowling, And this is Critical Care Scenarios, the podcast where we use clinical cases, narrative storytelling, and expert guests to unpack how critical care is practiced in the real world. So I thought we would talk about abdominal compartment syndrome, which uh, is certainly a little more of a clinical topic. I think the last few times we've chatted were more clinically adjacent subjects, which are worth talking about, but there's plenty to talk about in the world of true medicine, too, and I think this is one of those areas. You know, we, I think, are both doing a little more surgical-type critical care than uh, more kind of medical critical care right now, and I I think this is something that tends to fall into that realm, although certainly MICU patients can come across this, too. Um, You know, for those who have not giving this a whole lot of thought. Um, abdominal compartment syndrome is sometimes called ACS, although that can really confuse people who are thinking about uh, coronary syndromes. But this is just when the pressure in your abdomen gets too high, and you develop a, a, a compartment syndrome, just as if you'd had it in your, your leg or something, uh, or in your head. You know, we both see neuro patients as well, similar phenomenon, you know, pressures get too high, start to choke off uh, venous flow and then eventually arterial flow and causes perfusion issues. Not the most common thing, but not really a zebra either. I don't know. When's the last case of this you saw?
1: Gosh, it's been a while. I feel like like you said, it's not the most common thing. It used to be, I think, a lot more common. Uh, And I think a lot of that was iatrogenic uh, abdominal components. Yeah, yeah.
0: You know? I feel like this is one of those um, prodromes of a certain flavor of critical care and resuscitation that uh, hopefully we're not doing too much anymore. You know, That's the kind of thing where you would just flood patients with fluids, and they would just puff up everywhere. I, I, I had a, <laughs> a tenting tell me once when I was training that the way you treat sepsis is you just bolus the patient fluids until they developed abdominal compartment syndrome, and then you stop. And that's how you
1: know when you're done with volume. I used to know a trauma surgeon who said, you got to swell to get well, and uh, same principle. I, would, I mean, we would give, in trauma resuscitations. Uh, I mean, I would give 10, 11 liters of crystalloid in the trauma bag. Yeah.
0: <laughs> and that's, I mean, it. it, it was this whole era where, I mean, yes, people eventually stopped giving fluid, but it's like y- you had to reach these absolutely hard limits to convince someone that another liter of crystalloid was was no longer helping. Uh, hopefully, I think by and large, we have earlier thresholds for that. But um, I mean, this is one of those markers where like clearly, clearly there's too much. Now, there, I mean, you could there could be other causes, you know, anything that takes up space in the abdomen. So if you have Space occupying lesions like tumors or something, you know, the bowel is dilated because of ileus or obstructions or whatever, or anything that prevents the abdomen from expanding, you know, kind of reduces the compliance of the wall. Um, You know, in theory, things like burns can do this. but I mean, I think it's a good example of kind of physiology. Because again, we see compartment syndromes elsewhere, too, right? You imagine um, someone with elevated intracranial pressures for all the same reasons. Something's taking up space, uh, the, the skull is not compliant, and then you start to choke off blood flow. And it's sort of the same same ideas. I, I guess the, I feel like the difference here is that people, uh, I think, don't think about this unless they're forced to. and. Maybe some people more so, again, maybe in the surgical world. But I don't know. This is, I feel like, not the kind of disease that necessarily jumps out at you unless it's you kind of have a little flag in your head to, to give it thought in, in certain clinical contexts. Yeah,
1: well, I think part of that is the sequela and consequences of it aren't as readily apparent, right? Increased ICP causes serious changes in levels of consciousness and people's ability to function, increased inner thoracic pressure like cardiac tamponade um uh, tension pneumo stuff like that causes cardiac arrest at some point uh whereas an increased abdominal pressure i think the signs are much more subtle you, you, you know i think been, people want to big bloated belly What's the yeah big yeah
0: that like the one marker people it would kind of put it on people's radar is if the abdomen was obviously like very tight and distended and if, you know of course it it can be that now, if you didn't examine the abdomen, <laughs> uh, maybe serially, you might not even notice that. But uh, you know, I think if that's what you're waiting for, you might you might miss it. Yeah, you know, abdomens can deceive you, especially you know if there's a lot of fat there, if there's other things going on. Again, if you, maybe you checked the patient 12 hours ago and since then they've developed ACS, um, it's I think one of those things you just have to have a lot of suspicion for, or you're, you're You're going to miss it.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And for folks who are not practicing in an area where they deal with a lot of belly pathology, um, this can kind of sneak up on you. But intracranial, I'm sorry, intra-abdominal hypertension can lead to intracranial hypertension or can worsen it. Right? There's a number of mechanisms that we see whereby that uh, increasing intra-abdominal pressure can cause um, rising pressure. Uh, either through, uh, you know, poor venous drainage from the head uh, or backflow through the spinal veins, and cause increased ICP problems. So this is something that definitely should be on your radar, um, regardless of the environment that you're practicing in.
0: Yeah, there's this whole um, kind of theory. I think what they call it the, the multi-compartment model or something like that of the body, where all of these compartments have kind of related pressures. And you know, if you uh, had a high pressure in, let's say, your abdomen, you're probably going to have high pressures in, let's say, your chest and or maybe your head, and and vice versa. Um, the at shock trauma in Maryland, they used to talk sometimes about um, opening the abdomen, doing a, a decompressive laparotomy. To help with elevated ICPs, I haven't, haven't really heard about that in a while. But I mean, just kind of making the point. And if you're, it's like, why, why would these compartments communicate? Well, they do, you know, right? There's there's shared venous uh, columns of blood, and you know, if blood has to return through, let's say, the the IVC to get back to the heart, you know, if the pressure there is high, then it's going to increase pressure and reduce drainage from also, the head and everywhere else. I mean, it's they're all kind of connected here, so it's you know the body is one. And <laughs> even if you're maybe not directly working in the area, it's definitely something to to put on on your radar. Um, the like I said, I think the having a high suspicion is is important to to start out with, and then you know you got to actually diagnose these things. Most everyone, I think, is doing this by measuring pressures through the bladder, I I mean, are you doing... Because in theory, there's other ways you can measure abdominal pressures. Have you ever used any other approach? No.
1: In terms of an actual quantifiable number measurement, bladder pressure is pretty much all I've ever done.
0: Yeah. You know, the bladder is a floppy compliant bag. If you can measure the pressure there, it pretty closely approximates pressure in the abdomen. Usually this is through a Foley. You know, they have... Special folies that make this a little easier, but it, you know, just, again, using the principles to understand it, you don't need it. You know, you get a little bit of fluid in the bladder, clamp it off, and then just measure the pressure maybe through the sampling port with any kind of manometry device. Um, Again, in theory, you could do other things. If you were doing something like a paracentesis, you could directly measure pressure there and so on. But I think you want to be able to measure, not just relying on your clinical impression because you you miss some and it's just hard to make it more convenient in the bladder. If you're like looking out for this, how often do you check pressures?
1: Yeah. So I think it just depends um, if you're really concerned about it. So what I would do is probably measure sewer pressures every couple of hours Um, And or if I'm in the room frequently looking at the patient, I'm going to compare what what does their abdomen look like now, what does it feel like now, that clinical exam, um, as opposed to what it looked like an hour ago or whatever. And if it's rapidly changing, I might measure it more frequently. Um, But if I'm just relying on setting a rule and whoever happens to be assessing the patient, you know, the nurse, the day nurse, the night nurse, tomorrow's nurse, etc., uh, that I usually do every four hours or so.
0: Yeah, I I think, I feel like the most common one I've done is maybe every four, maybe every six hours, but the most useful one is often like the initial reading. Like you're worried about it, you check the pressure and see if it's <laughs> a problem or yeah. not. Um, and, or, I mean, I guess we should say also, like, you know, when do you have the the suspicion? Obviously, if there's reasons, the pressure could be high, but, you know, clinically, what does it look like? You know, you've got, you know, organ failures and signs of decreased preload to the heart. So someone is looking shocked. It's it really a, an obstructive sort of shock, basically. Um, I guess I was always taught and still sort of believe that the first thing you're probably going to see is renal signs. So decreased urine outputs, you know, maybe rising creatinins and things like that. Maybe just that's one of the first kind of things you'll choke off, as it is in so many other cases. The kidneys are are so sensitive. Um, But anyone who's kind of got signs of shock, and especially if they otherwise seem like they should be reasonably well resuscitated, and their heart's working, and so on, and you're like, why can't this guy perfuse? That's kind of when I'll think about this. But also, again, just anyone who's at risk for it, maybe you should be looking at yeah. it.
1: Yeah. Well, I think the reason we think of the kidneys so much is they're a great barometer of this, no pun intended, um, because you constantly are making urine, right? And if you've got a folia and you're constantly putting urine out, and I'm not dependent on anything else to detect a problem versus like gut ischemia, right? If you're, you're, um, you know, bowel vasculature is getting compressed and your gut's getting ischemic, the first thing it's going to cause is some pain, but if your patient's, you know, comatose or they're sedated or they're just so sick that they really can't complain about um, vague abdominal pain, then that's not a real good marker, and you're not going to see a reduction in bowel function as a marker of problems. So, you know, you at this every hour urine output, it's pretty easy to spot
0: yeah and of course, there are other reasons you might have you know decreased urine output. Most of these patients are going to be sick for other reasons, and maybe they've just got an evolving ATN or something. Um, but it's this is why I think you just need a diagnostic test your Your guesses are only going to be so good, although you know certainly maybe you have a patient who kind of seems like they're over their hump of their resuscitation. You would be a little surprised if their kidneys are getting worse rather than better at this point, and yet you know the urine output's been tapering off the past couple of hours, and you're like, "Hey, dude, what's your deal?" Oh, maybe we should you know check the bladder pressure.
1: Yeah, so that's when I start to think of it is that clinical exam of tight abdomen combined with uh, urine output decreasing slash renal function labs worsening um, and or a high risk pathology. So yeah, like you said just decreased urine output by itself, I probably never think of this unless I either have, like I said, the the other clinical signs, the increased risk, or I've kind of gone down the tree of what can cause decreased urine output and nothing else comes up.
0: Yeah. I mean, I maybe the best way to think about it is actually the other way. If you seem to have quite good renal function and you're thinking about ACS, maybe it's not right. that. Right. You know, it's it's like it's hard to have a clinically significant compartment syndrome if your kidneys are, are banging away without a problem. Again, I don't I don't know what the like sensitivity of that is, but it's I think a reasonable way to think about it. But you know, again, if you think about it, just check it. It's not that hard to do. Measure bladder pressure. The numbers you see in books are under about twelve is considered normal. Above twelve is intra abdominal hypertension which is kind of like intracranial hypertension it's like the number is technically high but probably is not causing you organ problems and then over 20 is when you start thinking about problems but just like in the head you also need signs of organ dysfunction if it was like 25 but the patient is fine then is kind of like what do you do with that but then they have renal failure and other problems you would call it ACS the measurement can be a little bit tricky to Obtain without any confounders. I mean, people will say you should do this laying flat, which makes sense. You know, if you're sitting up or leaning up or scrunching up your belly, it increases the pressure. That's not so hard. Some people will say you should do this paralyzed because, of course, every time you take a breath, it changes your abdominal pressure as the diaphragm drops. That's kind of a whole other thing because, you know, do you want to paralyze your patients just to to do this? I don't know. Sometimes you'll be like surgeons will come and be like I don't believe that number. They're not paralyzed. I guess I tend to like check the number and then if you want to confirm it with something more reliable, maybe I would consider doing that. But like if it's low then whatever. Obviously it it's not going to be falsely low. <laughs> it can only be falsely high. But then if it was high and I'm like should I believe this? Maybe then I'll take more efforts to get a really clean number and maybe consider Pushing something to transiently paralyze them and, and measure something like that. I, I mean, I don't, what do you do? Yeah,
1: so I think that's a good point. Um, it, like you said, first of all, if you, you know, it's like some of these screening tests that we do, so many things, right? If it's negative, then you believe it. It's fine. If it's positive, then you go, eh, maybe it's positive, but I got to do some more investigating. If it's low, it's low, right? You're not going to get a falsely low number. Uh, but if it's high, what do you do with that if it's not done perfectly? Uh, and I think this is where, you know, you start to consider other things. Like if it's high, how, how high is it? Is it 15? I mean, technically that's high, um, but is that high enough to really worry about? Are we having... Right, because you're not going to act on it. Right. I mean, it probably just tells you they're at risk, which you probably knew Right, already. exactly. Um, you know, so are they having symptoms of of compartments in it right they're having kidney failure they're having potentially you know bowel ischemia uh shock etc um, and so i that's where i go i don't know that really measuring it super accurately is all that helpful because if you're measuring it and getting a, an idea and it's bananas high then you go well it's really high and they're having symptoms so we need to do something. And if it's high, but they're not having any symptoms, and you go, well, I don't know if I believe it. Well, then who cares? They're not really having symptoms, so is it something? Yeah, that yeah, need to definitely
0: act on? the the overall picture matters about as much. And of course, that means uh, data, including you know how hard are they breathing? Do they have a really strong respiratory effort? And uh, I mean, you know, the abdomen is like clenching down with each breath, and you're like, I bet this really matters a lot. Or they're on the vent and they're breathing pretty passively. And I'm like, I, I, don't, I can't imagine it's varying that much here. And it depends on the overall impressions of everyone involved, right? Maybe you're like, regardless of the exact number here, I'm pretty sure this is ACS. And then you've involved some surgeons, and they're like, we're not so sure. Prove it to us, that kind of thing. Right. So, I, um, you know, if it's high, what do you do? Um, obviously, there's kind of medical things. You know, if the patient is fluid overloaded, maybe you can get fluid off them. Maybe you can diurese them or dialyze them or whatever floats your boat. If there's something taking up space, maybe you can clear it out. If their bowel is way distended, can you decompress it with, you know, OG tubes, rectal tubes? If they have a lot of ascites, can you tap that and get rid of it? Uh, and so on. But, you know, if someone's really sick, often we're talking about kind of going all the way, opening up the abdominal wall to relieve pressure. So this would be a, a decompressive. Laparotomy. You're basically just—it's like taking off part of the skull to decompress the head. You're you're making a big incision to let the abdominal contents uh, kind of move out of the that abdominal domain and give them some room to breathe and, and decompress it. You know, you can't have elevated pressures in a compartment if the compartment is not not closed. Um, This is certainly talked about more than it's done. When's the last time you saw this? And I, I guess I mean done specifically for decompression, not for some other abdominal
1: surgery and maybe left open. Yeah, that's a good question because while it's not super common, it's more common to see, you know, we did this surgery and we left the belly open because of swelling or whatever. Yeah. Um, and
0: that this is partly for this right, reason. Right. I mean, someone with who had trauma or a big abdominal surgery and is left open in a, in a like a damage control strategy. Um this is partly why right. they're at high risk for this. But there's other reasons, right. you know. They also they, they might need to go back in, they might have more bleeding you'd want to catch. Um and it's all it's kind of like it's not to trying to treat abdominal compartment syndrome, they're in there to do something else. But now like they probably Maybe they couldn't close right. the incision even if they had wanted to. So that is sort of, you know, now they yeah. have it. But
1: uh, I, Yeah, I think in the last couple of years, probably a handful of cases where it's been specifically we're going to go to the operating room to open the belly or even we're going to do it here in the ICU to open the belly to let, uh, let the pressure, relieve the pressure. Um, and all of those... That I can that I'm thinking of have been post-surgical patients who had some sort of surgery in their abdomen uh, and were able to close, but now there's some kind of complication. Uh, so, so yeah. not a you know ascites, bowel or uh, bowel edema, um, it's more medical uh, genesis of the problem.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's it's not something that. I think surgeons love to do. I mean, even, you know, we're using an analogy of intracranial hypertension. I almost feel like sometimes neurosurgeons are are more interested in doing decompressive craniectomies than, you know, general surgeons are in doing decompressive laparotomies. And I, I think it's because the outcomes are not terrific from these. Like, even when you decompress the belly and it was probably the right thing, the mortality is quite high. And maybe that's just because these are patients who are usually very ill and you haven't necessarily changed that. You've just temporized one of their problems. Um, but it's also, uh, it's kind of morbid. You know, you can't necessarily close the belly up a few days later. Um, the Abdominal contents all kind of spill out. Usually they'll cover it with, and the most common thing now is a wound vac. Uh, you can do other things, basically anything that kind of keeps everything clean. But um, you got to be able to, kind of decompress everything, get your edema down, make the patient better before you even start thinking about being able to close things up. And it can take quite a while, maybe many weeks sometimes, until you're able to reapproximate the edges of that wound and, and close the abdomen. And sometimes it's it's much longer or never. You <laughs> know, once everything kind of spills out and they lose that domain, it can be really difficult to squeeze it back in sometimes. And sometimes patients need, you know, graphs to close up the the defect, because they could just kind of never get the edges back together without, you know, tension and causing compartment syndrome, as well as issues just with the wound and, and the flap. Um, so it's it's kind of not a small matter. I mean, patients can ha- will have giant uh, scars and you know sometimes grafts and healing issues and I don't know. It's uh, one of those things that's a, a step to be taken uh, not lightly. Although of course. It must be done. It must be done. But I, I certainly one of those things that we we talked about not too long ago. It's probably easier for us as non surgeons to invoke the the possible need for than I imagine for surgeons to actually go and do it because they know what what they're kind of the
1: path they're setting down. Yeah, I, yeah. There's just all sorts of potential complications, and you know, I think the comparison with decompressive craniectomy is uh, a really good one. The I think the one of the big difference, you know, is you have immediate life threatening stuff happening in the head, whereas the which makes the opening of the skull the only option to save the patient's life. Um, well, certainly that can happen in the belly. The you know, the, one of the issues there is you know the abdomen is surrounded by a somewhat flexible wall, uh, and so you can build up a lot more. You can t- take a lot more insult before you get to that pr- kind of pressure versus the hard skull. Um, you know, most of the dim- most decompressive craniectomies, you know, you close the skin, right? You take the skull flap off, but you close the skin, and so you have this patient who, um, for all intents and purposes, appears normal. Versus the belly, that's the pro- the skin's the problem, right? You can't close the skin; you have to leave it open, which puts you at risk for extra infections. Um, you know, and, and all sorts of other abdominal badness.
0: Yeah, and again, they'll usually cover it with something. But it, you know, it's funny. You, you can decompress the abdomen and still have elevated pressures. I guess like you, like you can in the head. But um, I mean, you can only open things up so much. And especially if you're putting a vac on or something, it, to some extent, it creates a new, a new compartment size that you could still over, <laughs> over. Yeah, distend. you're just upsizing so the compartment. A, Yeah, yeah. So you still got to kind of watch out for these things. Um, And yeah, they can do this right at the bedside sometimes in the ICU if the patient's not well enough to go to the OR, which kind of highlights the other difference, right, with some of these maybe neuro patients. Often that's an isolated problem. These patients usually have a lot going on. You you don't usually develop ACS in, in someone who is otherwise stable. These are patients who had a you know, a perforated bowel, and they became massively septic, so they're still in shock, and they're still on a bunch of antibiotics, they're still on the ventilator, they still have ARDS, and also <laughs> they have this problem of abdominal pressures. So you had, you're juggling all these other things, and, and yes, it's a, a sort of straightforward procedure, um, but it doesn't mean it's easy to do. In fact, some patients will, will develop instability in the setting of being decompressed, you know, just like any, uh, like a, a peripheral extremity compartment syndrome, you may be kind of bottling up some stuff that releases when you relieve pressure. And patients have been known to to code or to decompensate when when that's kind of released and ill humors start to flow again. Whether that's lactate or um you know acidosis or or just changes in in the you know filling pressures for the heart and kind of fluid shifts um it's it's one of those things that's mechanically simple but not necessarily i guess physiologically simple
1: yeah and don't you think in in your experience that those sequela tend to get worse the longer you wait to decompress it's like you get this reperfusion injury almost right from the buildup of um the buildup of toxins and, and metabolites in that um, in those, the vasculature that's choked off that the longer you wait, then the more of that's released once the pressure is relieved.
0: Yeah. I mean, I, I do think so. Uh, of course it's hard to pick apart the other variables here, but again, it's like, you don't want to do the thing, but if you do have to do it, you should probably do it earlier rather than later. So you're trying to decide if it's, this really must be done especially if you're trying to do maybe other things to, to temporize it or medically manage it like oh maybe if we can diurese some volume off we won't have to do this all right well how long are you going to try that you know <laughs> is this just drawing this out or could it actually avoid doing this intervention or you know maybe we'll try to dialyze how well will they tolerate it who knows we got to get a line in we got to start some crrt it, it's, um, it really kind of fits in in a complex way with everything else going on in, in critical care. A great example, I guess, of the challenges is of surgical critical care. You know, it's a, a surgical procedure, which is, is complex and, and has to dovetail into a lot of other management. And there's not really a right time to do it. And even when it's appropriate is is unclear. And you really should have input from probably a lot of different disciplines, but it's going to be a judgment call. Yeah, I was going to
1: say, is hearing you describe that uh, that process, I thought, well, you're really talking about everything that happens in the sick you, right? Like, uh, you know, patients bleeding, uh, how long do I keep transfusing before I take them back and re-explore? Uh, right. Patients, you know, renal failure, how long do I keep doing Lasix challenges before we give up and put them on CRT? Um, you know, I mean, that's that's the essence of critical care in general, but especially surgical critical care, I think.
0: Yeah, and especially when the the tie-in is with a a surgical procedure that may or may not have to be done. Because then it really is, um, it can't be any one person's decision, you know. At the very least, the the critical care team and the surgical team are going to have to come to to some kind of agreement. All right, what else about abdominal compartment syndrome must be said?
1: Uh, I don't know. I think we've covered it pretty well. I mean, it's not super common. I think it's less common now than it used to be. But when it happens... Uh, it's something that usually causes lots of problems.
0: Yeah, and, you know, again, something that in some ways seems simple, but um, simple doesn't always mean easy to, to understand and manage. It's, it's you know, the, the practicality has become quite complex. I think the important things are having a, an index of suspicion to look out for it and a low threshold to, to check for it, measure pressures, not just say something like, ah, I don't know, the belly looks okay. Well, maybe, but, you know, who knows? And, you know, getting a lot of people involved to kind of make these decisions because it's not really a right answer, but maybe you'll get closer to right if everyone's head can be in the ring and <laughs> and just give it some serious thought. Yeah. All right. Sounds good to me. Talk to you yep. soon. See you soon.
1: Thanks.